0: Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Jeff Nussbaum about his new book, Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. Most recently, Jeff served as the senior speechwriter for President Joe Biden. Previously, he was a lead speechwriter for the last four Democratic National Conventions. Jeff is an adjunct professor of public communication at American University School of Communications and is a partner in the speech writing and strategy firm West Wing Partners. Jeff Nussbaum, welcome to That Said. Pleasure to be here. So I always like to start these interviews by asking the authors to tell us something about themselves, where they grew up, where they went to school, and then we can get into how to become a speech writer.
1: Sure. So I grew up outside of Boston, town called Weston, and my um my dad was a, a scientist, a physician, and so I spent a lot of my after-school time in the lab. You know, drawing blood from lab rats, running gel electrophoreses, and so the idea of being a writer, even being a speechwriter, was never an obvious one for me. That's that's for sure. But I went to college. I went to Brown in Providence, Rhode Island, and and fell in love with writing for the paper and. On a lark, applied for a White House internship and, and sensing that my grades alone weren't gonna get me noticed, I decided to write an application essay in which I inadvertently demonstrated some stuff that the speech writing office wanted, namely, I grabbed my essay with the line: very few people are lucky enough to get a chance to make a mark in the White House. I just want a chance to improve upon the one my sister already made. So the joke when I came around to it at the end of the essay is that when she was one and I was five, we were taken into the Oval Office, meet President Carter. There's a sense of my age. She wet the rug in the Oval Office. But in writing that line, it showed a little humor, it showed a little personality, and it did something that all speeches need to do, which is it captured attention right off the bat, right? Speakers have such a limited amount of time to capture an audience's attention.
0: Well, Actually, though, it's an important aspect of lots of things. I interviewed David Gergen, who wrote this book about leadership. And in his book, he said there are three rocket boosters to becoming a leader. And I think of a speechwriter as a leader because you're leading out with an idea. And he said, know your history, live a balanced life, and have a sense of humor. If you don't have a sense of humor, you cannot lead People And so leading with your sister peeing on the rug in the White House, I think was brilliant. And now I see why they hired you.
1: Well, I do think humor is so important. And it's important. And I I can give you chapter and verse on this, but it really, it, it helps in many cases, A, stick a dagger in your opponent in a way that would be mean spirited if it wasn't done with a smile. It can be a way to diffuse controversies. And most importantly, the only safe form of humor is self-deprecation. And it shows that you, even if you take your work seriously, you don't take yourself too seriously. And so for those and other reasons, I think humor is an incredibly powerful and still wildly underutilized tool.
0: And you use it, though, in your professional life now as a creative consultant to the Kennedy Center, Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. I haven't done that for a couple of years, but that's that's an opportunity to see, you know, the most celebrated comedians in America really do their thing. And so if you're capable of writing a line for them, like just getting one line into the show script feels like a tremendous victory. But but they talk about this as well a lot. Not, I mean, the comedians, of course, have made it their career. But the reason this whole show exists at the Kennedy Center, in part created by this wonderful guy, Cappy McGar, who's been very involved in democratic politics over the years, is that he really started with the thesis that humor is one of, our, one of our great arts and it's not celebrated enough.
0: And in fact, you write in the book, uh, an aspect of the book, and we'll talk about the book in different ways, but one of the things you talk about is how to write a speech. And one of the five elements, attention, problem, solution, visualization, call to action, attention, the bold claim or the joke to immediately get the attention of your audience.
1: Absolutely, right? Some studies show that when it's on a screen you have like 8 to 11 seconds when you're in person you've you know maybe double or triple that. But we're not talking about minutes and minutes of time to capture an audience's attention. And so a joke is a tremendous way to do that
0: right off the bat. And you had a stat in the book that said the average level of understanding in the United States is closer to an eighth grader than any other Grade, And so you not only have to have a sense of humor, but you have to have a sense of humor that sort of calculates at the eighth grade level. Yeah. And, and
1: part of that is it's not that people are dumb. It's that you don't need super sophisticated language to convey sophisticated ideas. When people get up to speak, something clicks in some in people's brains sometimes where they say, like, I must now therefore give an oration. And I must use this oration to show how smart I am. And I found that the speeches that are the most compelling aren't the ones where speakers try to show how smart they are. It's where they communicate sometimes complicated ideas in absolutely clear and understandable ways. And one of the things when I work with clients, politicians, CEOs, actors, athletes, you name it, one of the things I say is, okay, now explain to me what you do or what you want to try to say and explain it to me like you're explaining it to a child, because the speechwriter role is also often a translator role. And if you can explain something clearly or simply, you're more likely to get it to resonate with the audience and bring the audience along.
0: In fact, you quote Peter Robinson, the Reagan speechwriter. I think he was the one who wrote Mr. Gorbachev Tear Down This Wall speech. And in his book, How Ronald Reagan Changed My Life, what he said was that what made him and other speech writers who wrote for Reagan successful was they never attempted to fabricate an image. They produced work that measured up to the image that Reagan had established for himself. So they didn't want him to become Churchill. They didn't try to have that be the case. They wanted Reagan to be authentic.
1: That's that's right. And this gets to a central tension, really, in speech writing. There are some people who set out to write the platonic ideal of a speech and then get whoever they're working with to deliver it. And there's some people, and this is the Robinson school, which i never said that before, but now that you've helped me make that connection, I'll give you credit uh, with coining that the Robinson school is you want to help them be their best selves, but the key is self. And one of the things I talk about a lot is that if you're just reading a speech on paper, some of the most beautiful speeches are the ones given by George W. Bush. I'm also trying to prove my bona fides with this book that it's not a political document, it's a historical document. But anyway, this George W. Bush speeches on paper are truly beautiful. And yet when you listened to them in real time, there was a disconnect. It felt like. The jokes been made, it felt like watching a guy walking a tightrope. You know, is he going to successfully get to the end of this sentence? He is, you know, and and you were relieved. But it it was the disconnect. It was that disconnect between the beauty of the words and the fact that they didn't feel right coming from that speaker. And so to come back to the point, yes, I think the most effective speeches are when the speechwriter helps the speaker be their best self.
0: And in fact, we see that uh, in Bush when he was at. The White House Correspondents' Dinners, for example, when I saw him there, his humor, his self-deprecating short sentence, different cadence type of humor from the delivered speech, you could see this is the George Bush who I want to sit down with and be friends with. The other one, they were trying to make him into somebody who he wasn't, and you could see him be uncomfortable in his own skin around that stuff.
1: Yeah, and he has some of the great self-deprecating jokes. I don't, I'm don't. i probably going to misphrase it, right? But he said, like, you know, even my staff isn't confident, you know, in how smart I am. Every day on my schedule, I see it right there. It says intelligence briefing, you know. So, like, you know, that's just just wonderfully disarming.
0: Yeah, it is. But to the broader point, and you again talk about William Sapphire a fair bit in the book, he says that what makes a speech, a draft speech, a real speech is the speaking Of the speech. So, to your point, you can have the most beautifully written words, but that's no different than a screenplay is to a movie. It's all in the delivery.
1: Yeah, and at risk of undercutting what I do for a living, there's another saying that people will never remember what you said. They'll remember how you made them feel. And so, the delivery is what imparts the feeling. And it's what helps make the point that a speech is not an essay. You know, people write beautiful essays, but if you get up and deliver a beautiful essay, You will bore your audience to tears. A speech is, as I say in the book, sheet music, and you want the audience to hear the melodies and feel the rhythm.
0: And one of the things that I liked a lot, as you talked about ethos, pathos, logos, the Aristotle modes of persuasion, one of the things that I really liked was your recognition of the importance of knowing to whom the speaker is speaking. How the hell did he know that element of his speech? So could you talk about that a bit too? Because I think that was really interesting.
1: Yeah, this is early in my career. I got a lesson in this. I was put on what's called how to hell duty. How to hell being, as you just said, how to hell did he know that? And my job, this is as, as an intern, this was this White House internship, was to look at where Al Gore, I was working for Vice President Gore, was going and find out what was the score of the rivalry football game last Friday night. What's the intersection where everyone gets stopped in traffic or where the or the railroad crossing, where the freight trains come through and hold people up? And, you know, I would call the advanced person in the town or I'd call someone from the town. I'd say, what's going on in the town? What's news? What's everyone talking about? They say, oh, not much, you know, just the normal headaches at Malfunction Junction, whatever the intersection was. And then knowing that Al Gore would roll in 30 minutes late anyway you give them a line like, sorry, I'm late. I just got hung up at malfunction junction. And they say, how the hell did he know that? And this does, this actually serves a political goal, which is, it is ethos, right? We think of ethos as ethics, but really ethos is characterization. And it characterizes the speaker as someone who either knows or cares enough to know something about the lives of the people to whom he or she is speaking. And if he or she knows or cares to know that much about me, maybe I then can trust them to know something else about me, to know what I need, to know how to serve my needs.
0: And that personal contact, I think, especially in political speeches, allows there to be a sense of trust. I know when I was a trial lawyer and I used to pick juries to two of the points that you've made already. One was when I used to do my own voir dire before the judges took it over, knowing that I'd probably in the course of the trial make some attempt at humor, when I would strike a juror peremptorily, meaning at my discretion, if I made one of those little jokes during voir dire and they didn't smile, I struck them. If I can't have a rapport with them, they're not going to trust me. If they don't trust me, they're not going to trust my client's innocence or guilt, whichever side I was on at the time and following exactly the lesson that you're teaching us here.
1: It is funny that you say this because you're not the only person who I've spoken to since this book came out who comes from a background of trial law. And one of the things I hear a lot, uh, I this is the first I've heard of that, which I think is makes total sense and is fascinating. But the other thing I heard is that the components of persuasion that I talk about and in each chapter, I unpack an episode from history And I share the undelivered speech, but I also offer a window, as we've been talking about, into how speeches get written, what goes on behind the curtain, and some of the components of persuasion. And trial lawyers in particular have warmed to some of the stuff that's in there about persuasion because it feels very real and relevant to their own lives.
0: Yeah. You say, what is the speech about? Where will it be delivered? Has the speaker been there before? how I know you, how I know what matters to you, and this, how the hell did it happen? And then if it's a political speech, perhaps the call to action. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Is it, did it become over the course of your career more difficult to write or different to write speeches, given that speeches used to be broad, haughty visions, and then they sort of became efforts to sort of energize a base so as opposed to the roosevelt speaking we have nothing to fear but fear itself to the nation writ large to get my voters out because this person who i'm running against will make the world unlivable as we know it was that hard that transition it's it's not that the transition is
1: hard but it's that i think something has been lost and what's been lost is that really i mean if you think from lincoln douglas debates to the fdr's fireside chats the goal of these speeches was really to educate first and then persuade second in other words you're speaking to a broad audience many of whom may not agree with you but may be susceptible to persuasion and so a lot of time and energy was devoted to education now one of the things you're seeing is that because people are so, and this is just in the political context, people are so sorted into parties, groups, classes, whatever, that most of the energy is devoted to activation, not education. And therefore, if you're solely focused on activating, you're not really spending a lot of time speaking to a broader audience. You're not spending a lot of time trying to persuade people who might be neutral or even blunt the vitriol of those who are against you. And I think the more we speak to activating smaller audiences, the more we miss an opportunity to deliver broader messages to broader groups of people. And, and that is, uh, I think, a symptom more than a cause of a lot of the polarization
0: we see today. And there are a few presidents, specifically presidents who seem to embrace this persuade, approach to activate approach. Now it seems that less and less time is spent on the boys of Punk to Huck type of speeches that Peggy Noonan wrote for Reagan and much more the activation um, because we need to control the Senate or the House or illegalize something else. Yeah, this is
1: why I, I think that moments of tragedy still bring us together because there is And even this has changed a little bit, but generally speaking, there's not much political overlay over a hurricane or a tornado. And so the moments when there is no political gain immediate to be had, political points immediate to be scored, those tend to be the moments when Americans are able to look at leaders and say, okay, let me just evaluate you as a leader as opposed to evaluating you as a political actor.
0: Hmm. Yeah, although of course with hurricane relief efforts and
1: yeah, I mean Canada in
0: and in Puerto Rico, even tragedies become activation. Yeah, and, and yeah.
1: certainly, certainly, if it's gun violence and schools, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I realize that as I make that statement, we are living through a, a moment, and hopefully, it's a moment where almost nothing is apolitical anymore.
0: Yeah, which is a tragedy. So turning to the book, it's broken into, not not that we haven't been talking about the (laughs) book, talking about persuasion is an important part of the message of the book, but the book is broken into six parts, each section representing a category of the speech that might have gone undelivered. And so I'd like to go through some of them. We can't go through all of them. I want to leave the audience listening to want to hear more, so they'll go out and by this book and the first section of the book that I wanted to talk is what you call words that are too hot so first tell us thematically what is words that are too hot about and then let's turn to the John Lewis 1963 march on washington speech okay sure. yeah words that are too hot really
1: speaks to the idea that there are the speeches that people gave And there's a distance between the speech they ended up giving and the speech they really wanted to give, right? We don't live in an Aaron Sorkin show where you get to make this bold, passionate, beautiful statement and the world says, oh, yes, I finally see it. You were so right all along. What we have is environments where passionate people who are strong advocates have to speak to audiences that may not necessarily be their allies, and they have to persuade. And there's there are times when the heat of your words can actually serve to alienate the very people whose support you need. And this is a constant tension. But in the book, I find two examples of people who wanted to come in hot because They had a truth to tell. They had the truth to tell. In one case, and we don't need to dwell on this one, it's Wamsutta Frank James, who was the sort of the chief of the Wampanoag tribe, speaking on the 350th anniversary of the Pilgrims landing. And he wanted to tell the truth about what the Pilgrims actually did. And at this celebration, when the organizers caught wind of what he wanted to say, they found another speaker because he wouldn't tone it down. And the one that you want to call our attention to is, is John Lewis at the March on Washington in August 1963 and this was a case where John Lewis was, he he almost didn't even want to speak. He basically felt that the march itself was a march in Washington, and in his words, not a march on Washington. And it was being organized by labor unions and first-generation civil rights leaders, and to him that felt a little corporate. He had been leading the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He was in the fight. He had been on the freedom rides. His bus, even though he wasn't on it at the time, had been firebombed. You know, he'd seen the beatings, he'd taken beatings, he'd been arrested. And so he wanted to awaken people to the reality of the injustice in the South. And what happened is his speech the night before was shared with journalists as others were sharing their speeches. And it kind of created this cascading domino effect where people saw how hot the language was and you know, the Archbishop of Washington, whose seal of approval on the march was very important for Kennedy to embrace it, the Archbishop says, look, if you're going to say patience is a dirty and nasty word, I'm not delivering the invocation. And others similarly, you know, saying, hey, Philip Randolph, if you're going to tell the Kennedy administration that we can't support their civil rights bill, why are we even here? And so, People are begging and begging and begging John Lewis to dial it back. Even Martin Luther King be- begged him to dial it back and Lewis wouldn't do it until a Philip Randolph, who was really the, the grandfather of it all, uh, essentially begged him, you know, I, I've waited 22 years for this. I've waited all my life for this opportunity. Please don't ruin it. And finally Lewis retreats. And in the book, we have a, an image found in the archives of, of John Lewis and Cortland Cox and Jim Foreman underneath the arm of Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial, furiously rewriting his speech to make it palatable for the organizers, even though at the end of the day, it was a lot less palatable for John
0: Lewis. A. Hey, Philip Randolph says to John Lewis, John, we've come this far together. Let's stay together. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And this gets at the idea. And part of why I led with this chapter is one of my, roles in politics has been helping oversee speech writing at democratic conventions, where I sometimes say my job has been to get yelled at by 190 different speakers. But people have their own brands, their personal brands, what they stand for, who they are, that's very important to them. And at big events like this, like the March on Washington or a political convention, everyone is nominally on the same page. They do share a larger goal, But they don't want to sacrifice their own brands in service of that larger goal. And that's what Lewis was struggling with. His brand, to the extent he had a brand at that point in his career, was he was in the fight. He was fighting the fight. And so to be in the fight and then to stand up in front of tens or not hundreds of thousands of people and deliver something that felt a little limp to him was was not what he wanted to do. As he said in his words, um, I want to put some sting into it. And his first draft, I mean, his final draft was still considered the fieriest, angriest speech of the day, but, but his first draft really, really did put some sting into it. You know, he wanted to say, you know, we'll march through the South, through the heart of Dixie, the way Sherman did. We will pursue our own scorched earth policy and burn Jim Crow to the ground. And then he added nonviolently, of course, but you know, those were fighting
0: words. Do you think I had this question in my mind as I, read these undelivered speeches, whether you had a sense when writing the book, would it have made a difference? And if so, how would it have made a difference? In this case, if that which was undelivered was actually delivered?
1: Yeah, I think about this a lot in the book. Now, there are certain ones that the speeches would have set in, in motion, a course of action that would lead us to a dramatically different place as a nation or a world. You know, if John F. Kennedy announces 800 airstrikes on Cuba against already armed nuclear missiles. It's not the speech that would have necessarily changed the world, but it was deciding that course of action for sure. You know, if King Edward manages, Edward the eighth manages to stay on the throne, not abdicate, you know, and, and Mary Wallace Simpson in, in Britain has a Nazi sympathizing King at the dawn of world war two. Those are big differences. So what difference does it make if Lewis gives this speech? Well, My shorthand is, does America come away from that march talking about the nightmare and not the dream? That's one difference. You know, the the marchers had already been invited to the White House. They'd already met with Kennedy. So I don't know that history would be so different, you know, although I will say if the march had gotten angry or violent, you know, Kennedy was at the time a pretty weak supporter of a not incredibly strong civil rights bill. You know, does that cow him into not supporting it? I mean, you can play out history in a bunch of different ways, but I I certainly think that the the tone and tenor and the spirit of the march would be very different because one of the things we don't often think about is that Washington was braced for this march to be violent. I mean, they had called in the National Guard, they had deputized police forces from other jurisdictions, they'd canceled the senators, the baseball team had canceled their doubleheader, You know, one reporter joked because the then Washington Redskins, now Commander's quarterback, had been called up as part of his guard unit. Seeing him surrounded by all the National Guard, one reporter joked, that's the most protection Norm Snead has had all season. You know, but liquor licenses were suspended. I mean, the city was prepared for something really bad to happen. And so, you know, if Lewis unleashes a little bit of that energy, you you do have a different history.
0: And with Dr. King following with, I have a dream, if I have a dream right after John Lewis has a nightmare, it's a very different.
1: Yeah. and Remember, the King speech wasn't the speech that his advisors wanted him to give. You know, they wanted King to give a, a harsher speech that they called normalcy never again. And King lapsed into his I have a dream peroration uh, from memory because he had given versions of that speech hundreds of times before.
0: The second section of the book is a change of mind, a change of heart. Now, this, of course, would make history very different for these. So tell us thematically what a change of mind, a change of heart chapter is about. And then let's talk about the Richard Nixon's decision to resign, not resign speech. Sure. One
1: of the things I often say is that sometimes the moment a decision is crystallized, is the moment that a speaker actually sees the words on the page and says to themselves, I can say this, or I can't say this. And the most recent example is the January 6th commission, you know, showed the outtakes of Donald Trump speech on January 7th, where he could not bring himself to say, right. The script said the election is over and he kept banging his fists on the podium. I don't want to say the election is over. Right. So it was the moment of seeing it on the page, on the screen, he couldn't do it. So this is a case where in this section, several people changed their minds in substantial ways. Emma Goldman, the anarchist, chose not to speak at her sentencing for inciting a riot for fear that her words would actually incite a riot. And Kevin White, who's a really interesting character in history, a progressive mayor of Boston in the 70s, initially was going to stand against the busing plan to desegregate Boston schools. And he changes his mind. He has an 11th hour reversal, but the one you've asked about is Richard Nixon's refusal to resign. And he had a speech prepared, asked for a speech prepared, basically saying I'm going to fight this out. And one of the things I talk about in this chapter is that, you know, when we think about Nixon, Today, we think about, you know, the perpetual five o'clock shadow kind of looking like a little bit of a villain. But what we forget is that he was tremendously charming and persuasive. And I look back to the famous Checkers speech he gave where he was in trouble again and at risk of being dropped from the Republican ticket. And he went to the American people and delivered what one commentator called a basically a financial striptease and basically said, this is who I am. This is what I own. This is what I owe. This is how much money I make. Like, and by aligning himself with the average American, he, he really created a swell of sympathy towards his position. And, and here in the, in this speech, you can see him again, taking a similar approach and saying, look, I know the evidence against me doesn't look good. I mean, he literally almost says that, but here's why I think I should stay in office. And what's interesting about the non-resignation speech and the resignation speech he ultimately does give is it was sort of a justification in search of a conclusion, because he uses <laughs> the same justification not to resign as he ultimately uses to resign. And and that justification is continuity. In the speech where he does not want to resign, he says, look, we've had a president assassinated in Kennedy. We've had a president basically drummed out of office in Lyndon Johnson You know, if you have another president drummed out of office, it shows America to be unstable. And then when he resigns, he basically says, we've lost a president to assassination Kennedy. We've lost a president drummed out of office in Johnson. And and therefore, I'm resigning because we need to return to stability. So same same argument, different conclusion.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that the speech says there is a time to fight and there is a time to leave. Now I believe, paren, in the best interest of the country, I'm going to stay. Paren, yeah. In the best interest of the country, I'm going to fight. fight.
1: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, That's exactly. It,
0: so let me ask you this as a speechwriter. So Ray Price was the speechwriter, and Nixon says to him, as is often the case, write me both. How do you do that? How do you sort of be bipolar about these things? Sub- <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like, just part of the, the deal. If you want to be a speechwriter, you you have to have some well,
1: <laughs> well, I realize I'm speaking to a lawyer. So I say that a speechwriter like a lawyer should be able to argue both sides of the case. Unlike a lawyer, you don't have a right to the speech. <laughs> you don't have a right to both sides of the case. So so part of it is that's where the craft of speechwriting comes in. How do you make a strong argument? Now, the nice thing about my career and many others is I've largely been in positions where I agree with the person I'm writing for, or I agree with them more broadly, even if I disagree with them on one small tactical matter, that I feel good about arguing both sides. But arguing both sides is, this is a mystery that shows up elsewhere in the book, where John F. Kennedy had a speech announcing airstrikes on Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he had a speech announcing a blockade. and Though he denied it later in life, one of the things I show in the book is that it seems pretty clear that Ted Sorensen wrote more than he realized of both. I mean, he knows he wrote the blockade speech. He denied writing the airstrike speech. So yes, as a matter of craft, speechwriters can do it. But what you often end up with in cases like that is again, the justification in search of the conclusion.
0: Mm. You talk of, in the speech book about the speech you wrote for Daschle supporting the Iraq War Resolution, something which you did not support,
1: right? Correct. And that was a really tough one for me. And and I should preface this by saying Tom Daschle remains one of the kindest, most decent, most honorable, most wonderful people I've ever worked for. Even though I started in the White House with Al Gore, like my real education in, in leadership and how to be a leader Came in Tom Daschle's office and often at, at the, at the knee of Tom Daschle as it were. So I admire him tremendously. But I look back at that speech and I, we didn't know which way he was going to vote. And I remember this is a perfect illustration of what you're talking about. And I hadn't really shared this before. I didn't even really re-remember it till recently that I spent a lot of time in the draft speech talking about how South Dakota Uh, how South Dakotans had disproportionately served and sacrificed in our nation's wars. And that is why A, I do not support this, you know, this war. And that is why B, I make the decision to support this war after great soul searching. You know, again, it's it's the the predicate is there are going to be lives lost here. And so that therefore justifies this or it doesn't. And that was a little bit of the process.
0: And how much, I was always wondering about this, which is how much influence, when you have this binary choice, support, not support, does the speech writer have over the speaker? Does the speech writer get to say, in this case, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Dashell? I really think this, or do you just get the task of write it up both ways, Jeff, and I'll figure it out. It really depends on the relationship.
1: There are traditionally through history, speechwriters, we're talking about the Ted Sorensons, the Dick Goodwins, have been policy advisors first, poets second. So they had more standing to recommend courses of action. One of the things historically that happened is that speech writing was really became a separate function under Richard Nixon, who created his communications office in the form of a Madison Avenue ad agency. And so the speech writers, even though these are some of the most impressive writers, you know, you think about Pat Buchanan, William Sapphire, well, they were moved across the street. And so they weren't really interacting with Richard Nixon on a daily basis. And so except in really special deep, long running relationships, you know, like the one that someone like Mike Donilon has with President Joe Biden, the speechwriter doesn't really get a lot of say. But in the case of these special relationships, the speechwriter does have some say. But ultimately, this is the crux of leadership. You know, when people have reached a certain level of leadership, the easy decisions all get made, you know. The hard ones are the ones that show up at your desk. And my joke with Biden is like, you know, I have to expect the steward to come in and offer him lunch and say, would you like today to have the plate of broken glass or the shit sandwich? Because every decision he faces is really, really difficult.
0: You write that the speechwriters is a bit of a deal with the devil, meaning you have to give up ego and a voice in exchange for the opportunity to witness and help narrate History, but the speech ultimately belongs to the speaker.
1: That is absolutely the case, right? Part of why I wrote the book is, if I want to see my own name, or I want to hear my own name, or I want to go give an interview, I should do something in my own name. The right. speech, the speech belongs to the speaker.
0: But it's interesting. You tell a joke. I like to always bring humor in as we started this whole thing. Tell us the joke of the difference between hell and heaven. Quote, oh yeah, this know. is
1: right. Who who would think? There's an entire genre of speechwriter jokes, but there is, but there is. This is the speechwriter who dies and is given a choice between heaven and hell. And being a good researcher, as all speechwriters must. He says, let me see hell. And there he's shown millions of speechwriters hammering away on millions of keyboards under a crushing deadline. And he says, this seems like the worst version of my life. Show me heaven. And there he sees millions of speechwriters hammering away on millions of keyboards under crushing deadline. And he says, this is hell. And Saint Peter goes, oh, no, no. Up here, we use their material. So, so, you know, if that's the, that's the difference between heaven and hell. It's, it's going to be the same agony either way, but at least your agony sees the light of day in heaven.
0: The next section I want to talk about is the fog of war, the path to peace. Tell us about it thematically, and then let's talk a little bit about the, or a lot about, because it was so interesting, the Dwight Eisenhower note that you found.
1: Yeah. So when I started writing this book, it's certainly, you know, patently obvious that history can go two directions because of an election, right? There's a winner, there's a loser. You don't know who it is until the night of. But where are the other places where historical outcomes can be can be wildly divergent. And, and these are issues of war and peace. And so this chapter includes, uh, as I've mentioned a couple of times, air strikes on Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I have in the book the first and only, as far as I know, English translation of Emperor Hirohito apologizing for World War II, a speech we would not let him give, the Americans would not let him give because we needed his seal of approval on our occupation. And then there's the one you've mentioned, which is Eisenhower's apology for the failure of D-Day. And this is a speech that that people who know World War II history know that this exists, it existed. But the story behind it is, is really just fascinating and very compelling. This is something I found out that Eisenhower did quite frequently before an engagement battle. He envisioned its failure. And he would write something apologizing for it. And in this case, and in the book, we have an image of it. It is, it, it is handwritten. It is written very quickly, but there are a couple little things that show you just what a wonderful leader he was. So he writes the line, the troops have been withdrawn in this apology. Then he crosses it out and writes, I have withdrawn the troops. And as we know from our, from our grammar or eighth grade grammar, he has removed the passive voice and he's made it active. And in fact, he further makes it active by saying at the end, and the decision was mine alone and he underlines mine alone. So it's a wonderful example of responsibility taking. And it's a wonderful example of leadership to say, if you're gonna go forward with something, you should also envision what the world looks like if it fails. So he writes this short speech in his haste, he misdates it. He folds it up, puts it in his wallet. It remains there for several weeks. He discovers it, you know, once kind of D-Day is behind him, looks at it, throws it away. And his aide, Harry Butcher, grabs it out of the trash and says, like, this one we we might want to keep. And so that's how it came to
0: light. So I'd like to just pause for a second because I didn't ask you this at the outset. You said at the outset of the book that you were getting ready to Help Al Gore, or you were preparing Al Gore with three speeches when he ran for president. I lose, I win, we don't know what's going on. And you say that, and you can talk about this in a second. I'll set up the the predicate and then ask the question. You say that got you thinking. So talk about a little bit that got you thinking. But then I'm interested to know, in light of the Eisenhower note, how'd you go about researching this? Because it's such a well documented book. It reads like historical fiction almost, but then you turn to the very end of it and you've got twenty pages of notes and bibliography, sourcing yeah. everything. The good yeah, history. yeah,
1: and I'm and I'm not a historian, so I had to pretend to be one. But so so the Al Gore was the genesis of it because there were three speeches he did not give on election night because he didn't speak because it remained too close to call. That's, that was the genesis. I started thinking, well, where are the other moments in history? And part of it is it was kind of a slow rolling genesis because then I went and worked for Tom Daschle. And in very short order, the Senate was evenly divided 50-50. Senator Jeffords of Vermont switched and put Democrats in the majority. September 11th happened. 10 days later, there was an anthrax attack. Shortly after that is the Iraq war. And I just, as I was there doing my work for Daschle, I think, how different this would be if Al Gore had won. So, you know, but for 500 votes in Florida, all of these events are playing out very differently, or in some cases not playing out at all. And so one of the things my publisher liked was that they joked that liberals love history and conservatives love counterfactual history. And here I've kind of given both. And I was at a historian conference at one point. and, And again, I'm not a historian. And someone asked me kind of accusingly, are you worried that you've written a counterfactual history? And I said, like, worried? No, that sells books. But, but, but really, my answer is it's, this is more reality based than a lot of counterfactual histories because you get to see the first steps down an alternate path. And these are steps that the, the leader, the people's, the people who actually had agency at that moment had to wrestle with and engage with and consider. So that was really, where it all came from. And then to the second part of your question, how did I go about finding these? I, I wish there was some formula I followed, but each one was its own adventure. Each one was, you know, you, you see some breadcrumbs on the trail, you see some article says, New York had was so close to going bankrupt, the mayor had prepared a speech. And then you, you know, call the person who was the press secretary at the time. And he says, Oh, I remember that, but it's, uh, maybe it's in my personal papers. And but they're not. And then he tells you to call someone else and they tell you to call someone else. And you end up showing up at the lawyer who was prepared to file the bankruptcy. And in that case, it was his assistant who said, I think I might have what you're looking for. So each one was a fun adventure where I kind of followed all these things down the rabbit hole. And I'm just glad that as I've shared my insanity with the world, other people have enjoyed it.
0: Is there one that you didn't find that you think, oh, darn, I would have loved to have found that?
1: there's, I mean, the irony is I lost the Al Gore one that set it all in motion. So that's that's one bummer. But there have been others where I, the, the one that feels particularly relevant today that I did not find is there is a, a rumor plus, more more than a rumor circulating, that Boris Johnson had prepared speeches for and against Brexit. And, of course, he ended up pro-Brexit. And staked his entire political future on it, rose to the prime ministership, maybe re rising as we speak. But I would love to find something that shows how Boris Johnson would have argued the other way.
0: Mm, that would be interesting. Yeah. All right, back to the next section, which is, I think, one of the most compelling sections. The people choose what's the theme here. And we could talk about the two. We could talk about Altgeld, an unknown person in history, but a profile and courage, if you will. And then Senator Clinton's
1: speech. Yeah. Is- yeah. So people choose is the one that is the most easily explainable, right? This is elections and there's an outcome that went a different way. And Altgeld, as you said, is uh, is been largely lost to history, but is an amazing profile and courage. He was a progressive governor of Illinois. He he made his money in real estate. So he was a self-funder. He was very wealthy. He's friends with Clarence Darrow. When he comes into office, a couple of the remaining Haymarket prisoners, these are the people who are basically falsely accused and convicted of having participated in the Haymarket uh, riot and shootings. And he is going to pardon them. And let me,
0: let me just pause yeah. for a Just so people the Haymarket rally, Square Rally of 1866 was was a labor rally for an eight-hour-a-day workday. And it was anarchists like Emma Goldman and socialists like Eugene Debs that were commanding the attention of the nation. This was a very active time in labor history. A bomb explodes, killing 11, including seven policemen. And the, the, the Haymarket suspects are, are rounded up and tried. Four are hanged. Right. They're the Haymarket eight, right?
1: Right, yeah. yeah. So four yeah. are hanged. One kills themselves in their cell under potentially mysterious circumstances. And four, five. No, three three are hanged, one dies in his cell, and there's three alive, I think, at the time when Alfgeld comes to office, if that's right.
0: Three have death sentences when Elkelt becomes governor of Illinois. Right.
1: and he initiates his full investigation and he decides to pardon them. And an interesting wrinkle in this story is the person who wants to deliver the pardon is one of the jurors who originally convicted them, who's so heartsick over this miscarriage of justice he's participated in. But what this unleashes, and Altgeldt knew it was coming, Altgeld himself was an immigrant. It unleashes this wave of anti-immigrant fervor I mean, he is he is dubbed Altgeld the anarchist. There are political cartoons calling him the friend of mad dogs. He is basically drummed out of office and he's denied the opportunity to give his farewell address. And but he pardons um, them, right? He pardon I'm sorry, he succeeds in pardoning them. He chooses to pardon them. This juror delivers the pardons, they are pardoned, and this unleashes the wave. And as you set up rightly, this is against the backdrop of a time unequaled in American history until now when there's a huge discrepancy in wealth and power. And there's fear on behalf of the money-powerful elite that the workers are going to rise up, that the workers are demanding more. And so Altgeld, you know, this political cartoon calls Altgeld the friend of mad dogs. And and Altgeld is denied the chance to give his farewell address. That's the undelivered speech in the book where he is going to talk about basically the idea of cooling the partisan passions, that it's the job of the victorious party to compromise on some of what has made them victorious to get things done. And it's the job of the defeated party to go figure out what will bring them back to victory. But it's also a really powerful message. And I'll read a quote, "You know, in my judgment, no epitaph can be written upon the tomb of a public man that will so surely win the contempt of the ages, than to say of him that he held office all of his life and never did anything for humanity. So it also is this powerful statement about doing the right thing, no matter the cost.
0: And he was to deliver that speech, as was the tradition then, right, at his successor's inauguration. So the the passing of the baton, where Olcote was going to say, Look, you've won fair and square. I'm sorry that I lost because I pardoned innocent people. But here's my message.
1: It, yeah, it, exactly right. And the incoming governor, the victor, John Riley Tanner, you know, declares, and I'm quoting, Illinois has had enough of that anarchist and denied Al the opportunity to speak.
0: Yeah, you know, there is, I think, an opportunity where history may have been different. Wore that speech delivered. Because he went on to deliver that speech later, right? At Joliet and and he, other- he, gave,
1: he gave versions of it and he yeah. kind of gave a preview of it at the University of Illinois a, a really a beautiful speech about basically letting sunlight in. You know, sunlight as the as the great disinfectant. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: The the second one was also of monumental importance in, in the world in which we find ourselves now in this the people's choose chapter is hillary clinton's acceptance speech i know she had two of them one was what you called sort of a hodgepodge of paragraphs and another one was a conversation with her mom well Maybe it's
1: actually it's it's sort of a two parts of the same whole. one of the okay. things and one of the things that hillary clinton's 2016 her victory speech that went undelivered One of the things I use that speech to illustrate is that a lot of the pressures, a lot of the fissures that ran through the campaign run right into the victory. What are we going to say to the Bernie bros? What are we going to say to the Trump supporters I call deplorable? What are we going to say to the elite media? And it was missing this moment of elevation. And she finds it in a in her own story told in a slightly different way, a really beautiful imagined conversation where an adult Hillary sits down next to her mother when her mother's eight and being sent across the country. Her mother had a very, very difficult life and she sits down next to her mother and has an imagined conversation where she tells her how difficult her life will be. You know, she ends up out on her own, you know, working as a housemaid and she says to her mother, I dream of going up to her and sitting down next to her, taking her in my arms and saying, look at me, listen to me. You will survive. You will have a good family of your own and three children. And as hard as it might be to imagine, your daughter will grow up to be the president of the United States. And it's just this incredible, beautiful, heart wrenching moment that I think would have been the emotional touchstone to a tremendously historic
0: night. The thing that struck me when I read that speech and thought about it is if only she had been able to communicate the sentiments in that imaginary conversation with her mom over the course of the campaign, it may have turned out differently for her.
1: I think about that all the time. She had a line in her convention speech where she basically said, for so many years, I've been a public servant but I've had a much easier time with the servant piece of that than the public piece of that. And I think that too is a sentiment that people could understand if she had spent a little more time sharing that, which is to say, there's a part of this that I'm not the best at, but there's part of it that I'm really good at. And and I, it gets to this idea of authenticity, you know, part of why that's so powerful is it's very authentically and uniquely her. And I think politicians who under index, on that authenticity underperform.
0: You say about writing for Biden that he has that what he calls of himself a fingertip politician. He gets a feel for the room and tries to reach out and personalize his relationship with the audience in a way that Senator Clinton wasn't able to do. And you say that these so-called gaffes are really departures when he feels he needs to sort of have this authentic relationship with the audience.
1: Did I say that in the book? I, I, thought, I, didn't, I thought I didn't dine out on my Biden experience. I, didn't, I tried not to. So, so I don't know. I don't, but um, I will say that, you know, the president takes a lot of pride. And one of the challenges of the presidency is you have many fewer opportunities To actually get out and read the room, you know, to kind of see what's resonating, to to test out ideas and lines and things of that nature. And and to me, that's a, a wonderful trait that the president has, that, you know, that he's not coming out of nowhere with, you know, from an exalted position with pronouncements. He is trying to be very attuned to how what he is saying and what he is doing are actually impacting people in their lives,
0: and that's what, maybe I made it up, but I, I thought I read you. I, mean, yeah, him
1: a, a I, I definitely never conceded that he ever made a gaffe. I refuse to concede that.
0: Well, maybe I said his so-called gaffes are departures from the text without acknowledging them as gaffes. But I want to go back. To, I, I will acknowledge you said
1: that without comment.
0: Okay. But I want to go back to to Hillary's humanization of herself and saying to her mom, it works out, it will work out, don't worry, you're eight, you're being sent across country, your life is going to be miserable, but it works out. And sort of, to me, fit nicely with the events intervene part of the book, where you're talking about director Barry Jenkins, and we are that boy speech. I'd like to have this be like the last speech, but then I want to ask you one other question about Four speeches that the speechers didn't yeah, sure. get to deliver because of sure. their death.
1: Sure, and, this, and, and I'll answer this one in brief. So the speech in the book is Barry Jenkins, who they called La La Land the best picture of the winner, and indeed they miscalled it, right? It was supposed to be, uh, in 2017, we're talking about, it was supposed to be Moonlight, which Barry Jenkins interacted. And his undelivered speech was really about the power of story and being able to see yourself in a story. And he was going to tell a beautiful story about on set about a little boy who basically climbed into his director chair. But the, I I think to your point that, you know, it's going to be okay. I think one of the things leaders do is they help people see themselves in a larger story. You know, Hillary Clinton, I think was helping, you know, retrospectively, her mother see her place in a larger American story, but You know, if I had been writing that speech, I would have taken it a step further, right? I would have indexed heavily on the, it's going to be okay idea to say like America, it's, this is, it is going to be okay. This is how we come through things. But yeah, so I think that's really the takeaway there is not only are stories the most effective way to convey information and and elicit emotion. They serve a real goal, which is they help you see yourself as part of something larger, and that 's what that 's what moves audiences as the saying goes to action or allegiance and isn 't that the goal of the speech to move someone to action or allegiance?
0: The last chapter of the book contains four speeches that weren 't unable to be delivered at the time of the speech because of the death of the speaker and they 're all about themes of peace which i 'm going to yeah. let the, the the reader read all the speeches but I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. And then I made a note to myself that there was a, a convention, the Pan America Emergency World Congress of Writers back at the United Nations in May 22 this year. And they asked the group, can the written word meaningfully bring about change in a world threatened by cascading crises and catastrophic events? I'll tell you what their answer was, but if you could talk a little bit about it. yeah.
1: The speech, um, I, and then tell us
0: what you think. Can the written word meaningfully bring about change in a world threatened by cascading crises and catastrophic events?
1: Well, I feel like I'm about to get an education here, so I will, I, will, I will welcome that education. But the last chapter is sort of different because these are words that were undelivered because the speaker died. And we have Pope Pius XI preparing to speak out against Mussolini and fascism. We have John F. Kennedy speaking in Dallas at the trademark. And to the extent that people have seen or know about that speech, he has this wonderful uh, l- phrase about, you know, we're the watchmen on the walls of world freedom, but a closer reading and a reading of the context is a really powerful reminder that he's also saying the watchmen on the walls have to look in instead of out. And he has a lot to say about domestic extremism, FDR. He was getting ready to speak at a national political dinner And here he was prior to the end of World War II, of course, in 1945, talking about what it takes not just to end this war, but as he was prepared to say, an end to the beginnings of all wars, which would have been very powerful. And then Einstein speaking on his Israel Independence Day. And as you say, the speakers did not know their lives were going to be cut short. They did not know their lives were going to end at this moment, but several of them knew, you know, the Pope Pius, FDR, Einstein in particular, knew that they had more yesterdays than tomorrows for sure. And so the fact that each of them is reflecting in a very deep way on a fundamental question of how can we live together? How can we live together in peace? I found, I found it to be more than a thematic coincidence. I found it to be a really powerful through line. Because at the end of the day, isn't that the deepest question we face, you know, as a species?
0: That's right. And so the question of can the written word meaningfully bring about change in a world threatened by cascading crises and catastrophic events? What's your answer?
1: I think my answer is to a point. And to a point, I mean, the written word can evoke emotion. And it can create a story that lots of people can find their place in and it can create an unfinished story that inspires us to write a better final chapter so so the answer is yes the written word matters but the communication's tale can never fully wag the action dog and so you know we need we need people to use the positions they have to make the difference they can as well and so now you can give me the big reveal what was the answer?
0: Pretty much you nailed it. What the writers seem to unite around is one point, which is that truth and powerful storytelling can influence and inspire people to act, even if they cannot stop evil altogether or reverse the world's woes. Amen. Amen. Jeff Nasnam. <laughs> Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History, is a great read. And I'm very grateful for you to have written it and for you to appear on That Said with Michael Zeldin this afternoon.
1: What a pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin.